0: Hello, this is Joel Johnson, and we are going to do an excellent, very special podcast today. I've got my good friend Brad White uh, from San Diego, Epstein and White. Um, Before we get to him, however, and all kinds of great stories about what things have been like and what things are going to look like going forward, I want to just mention that anything you hear on this podcast uh, that you act on, you are responsible for your own compliance, for running it by your team. Um, Neither myself, Rainmaker Evolution LLC, Epstein and White, or Advisors Excel are responsible for you going out there and doing something stupid. So uh, please understand that and run everything by your people. Um, That said, I'm really excited. We're we're getting back into the interviews with uh, advisors out there around the country uh, during our Rainmaker podcast season. And um, Brad is somebody that we actually uh, did a podcast with about four years ago. So this will be a great way to uh, catch up, kind of find out where he's been in the last four years as far as production and business growth and so on. And so, Brad, uh, first of all, welcome.
1: Well, thanks for having me again, Joel. I can't believe, like you said, it's been about four years because um, a lot has happened since then. It's uh, It feels like another lifetime ago and um, should hopefully lead to some some pretty awesome discussions for you and I today, but certainly an honor to, to be here and, and, and happy to do it.
0: So let's go back. So you, uh, we have both just completed cause you've been in Rainmaker since the beginning if I'm not mistaken, correct? That's correct. Okay, so we've just completed our fifth year. So let's go back to, uh, to five years ago. Tell me what the business looked like, what your business looked like at the time, uh, as far as types of marketing, number of employees, maybe how much money you had under management, what the
1: focus was, and so on. Just uh, give it a rip from five years ago. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about five years ago. It kind of makes sense for me to tell you about six and a half years ago or so, though, because six and a half years ago was the day one of Epstein and White. Um, so I had been you know, a CFP and kind of concentrated on planning and, and more portfolio management, uh, working for different firms, actually MetLife Financial Planning was the firm I was at. I know you and I have uh, a bit of that in common, Joel. I, I think you were there too. Um, you know, Dave rest in, been, May, may uh, they
0: rest in peace. Yes.
1: May they rest in peace. Yeah. I should say from the old Bright House community or, or whatever it is I'm going to call it now. But, um, so Dave is the one who had been um, his own independent insurance kind of practice since 1988. And he was the one who had concentrated on high-level insurance and fixed and fixed annuities and had been with a couple FMOs until he joined Advisors Excel, and he um, didn't really do a lot of the complex planning or the investment side of the equation. So he had an existing radio show just called Safe Money Radio um, that he used for his marketing to bring clients in and provide fixed index annuities and insurance to them, and he would kind of pass on what I'm sure was millions and tens of millions of dollars of AUM um, to just uh, other people or other advisors, kind of in the the agency or the office that he was with, and that was a huge lost opportunity for him. So, and again, I know you asked about five years ago, but I thought that was important to say that when him and I met together, you know, it was nice for me to um, connect with somebody who had a good marketing um, radio show to bring in the leads. And essentially our deal when we got together was that we would create this new company called Epstein and White, and we would just be 50, 50 owners. Um, his contributions much more so on kind of the existing radio show in the lead flow. And then I would kind of handle everything else. Um, I meet with everybody. I build the financial plans from start to finish and the investment recommendations. I closed 100% of the people. I managed their investments. I serviced all the accounts. And uh, we started off with Dave, I, and uh, one assistant, Charlene. Uh, We quickly hired our second assistant, Ruby. So five years ago puts us more to 2014. And for 2014, that's really all we had, Joel. It was Dave, myself, um, and then Charlene and, and Ruby, and we had an existing radio show. That was it. We didn't do any seminars whatsoever. We did no digital marketing. We had no CRM. We had no drip system. Literally just uh, paper, you know, and file cabinets in a radio show. Man, I mean, pretty uh, kind of kind of crazy to think about five years later. Um, that year we did about thirty-three million or so production, just on the meaning meaning
0: new assets new assets brought it, brought in. Is that how we're yeah, new assets
1: that year in 2014 was around 32, 33 million, and uh, that was pretty close to a 50-50 split um, at the time between um, annuities and AUM.
0: So, did David um, was he pretty much responsible for teaching you all the ins and outs of the life insurance side of the business? Even though you had come from MetLife, I mean, I was you know around MetLife and we we're pretty much selling mortgage insurance. Um, <laughs> um, so, no, so I had did a he kind day, of? So- I had a you pretty did. good
1: base of, of insurance, okay. I would say. I certainly wouldn't say I had it to the degree Dave had. I didn't concentrate on a lot of, um, you know, the nuances of maybe the design of some of the insurance policies that, that his knowledge base had. But, but I had a pretty good feel for insurance. I will say that I was a little anti-insurance um, more so when I met Dave, um, because you know, as well as I do, that when you work for some of these firms like I did, when I got in the industry, they're just going to tell you to shove insurance down everybody's throat whether it's right or wrong. And, and since I got to hear and see and be in that culture, of firms like that, it kind of turned me off a little bit in my career. And, and so meeting Dave was more of a healthy blend of, and being in an, an independent company for my first time and not having to answer to a company was huge for me to really all of a sudden kind of as a fiduciary, really look at both sides of the house and, and see where the annuities and insurance makes sense. So I, I'd say that's a little bit more of kind of how those worlds for me, you know, and where Dave kind of would reintroduce that more insurance and annuity side into my brain a little bit as a planner.
0: So I've gotten to know Dave a little bit. And so, uh, you know, great guy. When you guys got together and formed your 50-50 partnership, did he absolutely insist that his name be first?
1: <laughs> um, he didn't, but uh, not not to get too uh, unpolitically correct here, Joel, but when your last name is White, it's really hard to justify you being the first name in any name that you're doing. It just doesn't have a, quite the same ring to it. So um, I, I even if I were that. to be, you know, the, the older senior partner someday or take somebody else on, we've kind of made that joke that. It might just make more sense to perennially have my name be the second of the two, and whatever name it was called. So <laughs>
0: it was really Makes more sense. Bad. Well, it's no mistake that we keep the name Brunetti up here in the Northeast. I would be pretty stupid to drop an Italian name for Johnson and Hogarth. Right. See, so, so you,
1: you understand. You I it,
0: right? com- it's all about marketing.
1: Yeah, I'm. The, I'll throw my pride aside any day of the week just to make a better name brand. And and by the way, you know things like retire right with Epstein and White. You know, it allows me to to make some cheesy rhymes on other marketing things that we do. So that's pretty. I'm good. not a buddy.
0: So, all right, so we so six and a half years ago, and when you formed Epstein and White, just you, David, and one assistant, and uh, I think that's what you said, right? One staff person? Yeah. Pretty
1: quickly and, after that, a second one, and, and we really just had us four for that, about year and a half, almost two years after that.
0: And so what do things look like today?
1: We now have about 25 people total um, at the firm, when you count Dave and I. Um, we did, about just under 200 million of new assets um, last year in 2018 alone. Um, We are our own SEC RIA. We have our own tax department, estate planning department, you know, life insurance specialists here, nine advisors running around. Um, We do the radio shows, um, but we also have done seminars over the years and added a lot of marketing. So, you know, I'd say we've gone from a, a, a practice, right, of Dave and Brad to an actual business. Um and a financial planning and investment um, real enterprise here. So, um, it, like I said, it's it's crazy to think those five or six years. Uh, it's it's not even the same world.
0: Are you guys up this year or flat or down as far as total assets? raised? Um,
1: part of it is 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 expected. Um, it's been an interesting year and a half, two years here, where you know the growth that we had was was pretty ridiculous for twenty. 15, 2016, 2017, 2018, and we got a little ahead of our skis, uh, in my opinion. Um, you know, for me, I really, really value and really concentrate on the stability of the AUM side of the business. Uh, it's not like I don't believe in in the annuities and writing the business, and certainly that's where a lot of our our overall company's revenue still comes from. But the stickiness. Um, of the reoccurring revenue stream is really the stability of the business forever. And that's why we work so hard to spend the money to get the people in the door in the first place is to keep that revenue stream. So I got really worried um, in 2017 that we just weren't doing a good enough job um, taking care of our existing clients. And we weren't doing a good enough job of servicing people. And so over the last two years, um, you know, I haven't been concentrating on increasing the marketing and increasing the production. I felt like the machine that we have up and running is pretty easy for us to do about 150 million of new assets, which is, I think, what we're going to do in 2019, more like 150, 160. And frankly, it's really only doing about one at most two seminars a month overall, um, and just referrals and clients and, and radio. So, I really spent a lot of time the last couple of years um, building out our AUM department and bringing it in house, so hiring chief portfolio managers and traders and billers and bringing on Tamarack and designing the system. Um, building out Salesforce in kind of a a myriad of ways um, to help keep things accountable for servicing clients and compliance and all of that stuff. So I kind of got pretty burnt out um, of doing everything that I was doing um, a bit over the last couple of years. I was stretched pretty thin. And rather than me concentrate on going from 200 million to 220 or 250 and worrying about maybe what's happening on the existing business, I purposely was okay with our production going down a bit this year. Um, So I felt like I could really create a lot more of a stable infrastructure. And I I really feel good about that to where if we want to grow and scale more in 2020 and beyond, I feel a lot better about it now.
0: So for us to generate one new appointment today, it's costing us about 25% more than it did in 2017. Obviously, we're not doing one appointment at a time. We're doing, you know, 20, 30, 40. Do you think that would be the case for you too?
1: Yes. Um, There's no question with radio and seminars like we were talking about in this last um, Rainmaker that the efficiency of those has gone down. Um, I will say the efficiency of the social security specific seminars that we do, which by far dominates where our business come from, from any one marketing activity, has actually gotten better. So I don't know if it's just the uniqueness of that style of event, but that's counteracted a little bit for us on the other side. But no question radio has gotten more expensive for, uh, for every lead that we're trying to generate and every person that, that makes the way in their office. Um, and, and, and the same with dinner seminars. Uh, and that's a bit frustrating. Um, the only thing that's helped me is, is it sounds like everybody's in a bit of the same boat. <laughs> so I guess misery loves company um, when we rack racking our brains trying to figure that out. But I think what you're also kind of trying to ask is if had I done the same exact marketing this year, would my production be the same? Um, the answer to that would be yes, because we've noticed our average case size has gotten better over the years. We just noticed that our closing ratio from first appointment to close has gotten worse a little bit. Um, But we've also scaled that up too. And I've always liked what you said, which is, you know, if I do a 25% close ratio on, you know, 1,200 people a year that I see, it's better than doing a 40% close ratio on a fifth of that. So a little bit of that's natural too.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how many people don't get that. You're going to have 80% of 10 or, you know, 50% of 100. And some people think they'd rather have 80% of 10. So which is why they don't own businesses, why they own practices. Um, let me, I want to come back to the social security seminar thing um, a little bit later. Um, but, you know, this whole thing about, you know, being flat or being down a little. So we're, we're down in money raised. Our run rate is to end up down about 6 to 8%. And we have never gone backwards before. So I am one irritable yeah. person And, uh, you know, we've been trying to fire everybody up. We have these little contests. Hey, if we bring in a certain amount of money, we'll go on a trip. And if we bring in a certain amount of money, now it's pretty much if we don't bring in a certain amount of money, you better polish your resumes. That's the contest for the fourth (laughs) quarter. And that's not really happening. So if you're an employee of Johnson Bernetti and you're listening to this, don't pay attention to that. But it is the first time that we have not. And again, we could have a a big, you know, 75 days or whatever's left in the year here and, and actually come out ahead but we're not used to not having these big years and everything's just been tougher and you know it are up in revenues but we're up in revenues because of the managed money uh-huh. um, but if I just measure new assets brought in it's been a real challenge this year you know our marketing costs are up and so on and you know so is everybody's across the board I don't want it to seem like I'm complaining or crying about it but but it's just been different it's been really different for me personally and for the culture of our company To not be growing by, you know, 12 percent, 25 percent, 30 percent year over year like we used to. So how um, how much
1: of that, Joel, do you think is just a a natural law of diminishing returns, given the kind of insane amount of growth and volume Johnson Bernetti already does?
0: uh, I think a significant amount of it is. But part of that is because, you know, you can't you know, if you get from zero to 10 doing something, you can't necessarily get from 10 to 20 doing the same stuff, right? So right. so I ask all these interesting questions, like, am I the right guy to be the CEO of this company? Um, so I ask myself questions like that all the time. Um, because, you know, there's this saying out there, well, the people that got you to, you know, X might not get you to 2X. Well, I've got to ask that question myself, too. So I think part of it's diminishing returns. I think part of it is, you know, I feel like I've been doing this now for a long time. I'm 57 years old. I want to go drive my race cars or, you know, read or do, I don't want to be as involved in the day-to-day business. So that's a little bit of a shift. I think, I think employees see that and it does have an, a little bit of an effect on the employees and they don't see the days that I, you know, didn't get home till midnight because I had three appointments after dinner and, you know, got stood up with, you know, showing up at somebody's house and they closing in the blinds pretending they're not there. And, and, you know, I'm borrowing a home equity loan to pay the rent and meet payroll. They, they don't see any of that. They just see, well, Joe used to be around here five days a week, and now he's only around two or three days a week. So I, there's a lot of factors in there. But I think you're right, Brad. I think diminishing returns is part of it. But I think part of the diminishing returns is because we keep doing the same thing, and maybe that's not necessarily the thing to do. I was just looking at some numbers today. Over a 12-month period, and I think it ended at the end of the first quarter here, um, we had gotten, between referrals, TV, and radio, we'd gotten 250 clients. So the point here is we've gotten 250, 260 clients in a 12-month period without ever doing a workshop. And clearly our biggest frustration right now is the workshops, is the workshop attendance. Um So, you know, when I look at that, if we never did a workshop, bringing in 250 new relationships with an average new relationship of 450, 500, something like that, that is not a bad-sized firm in any way, shape, or form. But I'm just not used to, you know, what's going on. The other thing is, just to kind of give you a little more insight, is when things go smoothly, I am not a, um, I don't function very well when things are easy. And right now, I feel like we've set up this business. So, for me personally, it's really easy. It's very easy. It's very lucrative. I get to do what I want every day. And when I'm in that mindset, I have to be very careful because I'll get a financial report or I'll get some kind of a marketing report. And immediately I'm down in the marketing department asking why is this not working as well as it used to. And I probably need to stay out of that stuff. And so that's one of the curses of things going really smooth and building a great business is, you know, do I have the discipline to either just not be in the office or not bother people and get deep into these, these items? You know, last Rainmaker, Brian was talking about stuff I get into that I shouldn't get into, you know. And, and you know, I'll walk into the closet where our server is and all this other stuff is looking for a uh, a cord, you know, like a USB to eighth inch jack cord or something like that. And I see 12 monitors Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I see like 12 monitors and 12 keyboards. And I know we're buying new computers like every month. So I'm immediately launching a full scale investigation over why we're wasting so much money buying new keyboards. Um, So you know, this is the kind of stuff where as we grow, I need to stay out of that stuff. But well, when um, we're getting, well, when we're, ha-
1: I, I'm sure I speak for everybody when I say we all feel for your problems that things are going so well um, that that just puts you in a bad frame of mind. You know, we, well, thank uh, you. We're, we're, here, we're here for you, my friend. Um, I'm going to start no, a support I'll, group in I'll this area. Decide, let me let me maybe give you a little bit of push. I, there's a couple things in there you said that I that I've been racking my own brain on here too, which is I think it's healthy to always question like, am I still doing what I need to be doing here? Like, if anything fails or if anything's on not working the way I wanted to in the business. I really try to make my natural reaction of like, what am I doing wrong? Or like, how have I not put people in place to do something better? Or like, what have I allowed to dissipate here? You know, these are all employees and they, they are tremendous people around here and they really feel like they take an ownership and pride of what's going on. But at the end of the day, if human beings are human beings and they need that constant push and they need that constant accountability so they can get the most out of themselves. And that's our job as CEOs and our job as leaders. So, You know, I think that you, the fact that you have that natural reaction of just getting unbelievably like intimately annoyed, I guess, for lack of a better term, if something's not working perfect and the fact that you can kind of light that perennial fire in all the different areas around your firm, I would say is one of the great things about you being the right person to be a CEO. I guess if I'm agreeing with you in anything, it's maybe if you're not directing that, that energy in the and in, into the right area. Like if you're directing that at a TV monitor, I'll, I'll grant you that. Maybe that's not the particular place you want to do that. But the reason I mention that, Joel, is because I almost err on the opposite side of things. I guess I've, I am not as motivated currently on the, the sales of the organization. I'm not as motivated on the production increase this particular year, year and a half, like I was the first five years of Epstein and White. Um, And now that I've seen some of our closing ratios dip a little bit and I can see a little bit of the um, complacency maybe in some of the numbers, it's making me think that it's it's my attitude and my lack of attention and my lack of being neurotic on some of these things that maybe is bleeding into our organization a little bit. And I need to wake everybody's, you know, behinds up in that regard too. So I almost err on the other side and I kick myself a little bit, Joel. So if I could be devil's advocate to you a little bit, I, I find it. To be a great thing that you are still that kind of motivator and lighting that fire around the organization um and i'm I'm wondering if maybe i've gotten a little bit complacent on the aum rolling in every month and wanting to do some of these other things around here um to where i'm forgetting that that we need to light a fire a little bit on some of the sales people and some of the numbers we're doing here at epstein white
0: great point good good point um, so you said that you brought in 200 million last year, uh, five years before that it was 33 million. So that's what a, f- a six X. Yep. Something like that. So that's awesome. So what were the main factors contributing to that success?
1: Um, I'll, 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 I'll pump your ego here a little bit, Joel. Um, I, you know what the first rainmaker was 2014, right? Like you said, uh, right. that like is beginning beginning correct. 20, yep.
0: Yeah. Beginning of 2014.
1: So obviously, right, this is like pretty new, the whole Epstein and White thing. I've only been my own financial planner. I've only been my own advisor forever. I start this, you know, business. I put in quotation marks with Dave and I, but really it's it's a practice, right? It's just him and I. Um, and you know, I did the very first Rainmaker, and one of the things that you said that like completely blew my mind was a couple of things was just, you know, hey, look, the quicker you see yourself as the CEO of a financial planning business and not an actual financial advisor, the better. But you follow that up by saying, you know, each of us has unique talents and things that we are great at and things that we love to do in our business and things that we hate. And if you could just imagine a world where you get rid of all the things you don't want to do and you hire and you delegate them out and you only do what you do, you can design a business around what you want. And I just remember that, like, for whatever reason, never entering my mind. I just accepted the fact that to be a financial advisor, there's a host of responsibilities and things that you do and you have to do all of them and you take the good with the bad. So I just remember that kind of being a Pandora's box of like, wow, I can really start to design an infrastructure and a business here. Um, And I flew home um, to my then-girlfriend, now wife, Ashton. I was just like talking about this. It was like midnight and she's trying to go to bed and I'm all fired up about creating these business plans. And that was the first time I'd ever really created an overall business plan for the following year. And that to me was where all the dominoes started to fall. Um, I'm a big believer of working backwards. So if my end goal is blank, I need to figure that out first. And then I figure out who I want to hire to get that done, what their role is going to be, what I'm going to pay them, how much business I expect to get out of that next thing, what my ROI is going to look like. And it gives me the confidence to take on one new thing after one new thing and scale it um, in that manner. So that was a huge, huge change because I just really thought that Dave and I were going to take on a couple hundred clients and then shut the doors and try to get to a 100 or 200 million of Jewel That was literally like all I thought. So once I realized I could hire and train other advisors and kind of scale myself and When I started doing seminars, it was kind of like now I'm doing 30 meetings all at once instead of 30 individual closing meetings. So the two scalabilities of doing seminars, hiring training advisors really kind of lit the fire for the rest of, you know, more of a scalable business, which allowed that kind of 6x growth.
0: Fantastic. So what does the firm look like today, Brad? As far as the way it's organized and and so on. You've um, already told me you had 25 total people. You and David own it 50 50. But what is the actual, yeah. you know, the, 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 yeah, the organization, the design of this this structure that you sit on top of?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I really would say I act more as, as really the CEO that, that runs kind of all the different departments and all the, the nuances of all the departments um, and ties everything together. So we've got our, our money management department, we have a um, chief investment officer and portfolio manager. His name's also David, David Krakauer. Um, so we, you know, run model portfolios as a firm. Um, I can go into a host of reasons of, of why I believe in that now, I'm coming out of a, a clunky SMA world, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but really streamlining the money management process is what I wanted to do. So we, that was a huge, huge hire by far a biggest hire. And then we also hired, um, Sharon, um, who does all of our trading and all of our billing, um, through Tamarack and kind of runs the rest of that portfolio management system, for us. Uh, We don't let the advisors do trading. We don't let them do billing. We really control that so that I'm just like usual. I'm a big believer of taking as many of that stuff out of advisors' hands as possible so they can't screw it up. Um, So our, our, and then we have one of our advisors, Ed, who had a background in trading at TD Ameritrade and he acts as the backup to Sharon for all things trading and billing just in case. Um, So I'm looking to grow that investment department over time with more than one portfolio manager, but that would be kind of be our investment department for now. Um, Debbie is our chief compliance officer and handles things like HR and other kind of, you know, business and HR and office type of things and manage employees and and all of that. Um, I've got a bookkeeper who works off site and CPAs and other that I kind of concentrate on all the financials. And then from an advisory team standpoint, we have what Dave and myself, which don't hardly do any real production anymore. And then we've got, what, six associate advisors and a couple, what we would call kind of service advisors, I think. Okay. Seven, excuse me, seven associate advisors and two um, what we'd call service advisors.
0: So do the service advisors work, support all of the the two service advisors support all seven of the associate advisors?
1: No, good question. Um, One of them just services my personal book and kind of handles everything in my book, um, other than like individual reviews and things for my high level clients that I still do. The other one um, is what we did last year for the very first time. So he's less than a year in and he handles all of the clients that have 250,000 or less for the entire firm for all of the other uh, six or seven associate advisors.
0: Okay, interesting. All right, so-, so what, uh, we,
1: what we, if I could just comment on that, um, sure. You know, we had been on the old structure, 30% payout for all the associate advisors forever. When we hired the service advisor, we basically said to all the associate advisors, hey, look, like we, we know you want you to, your books to get better and more concentrated with higher level people over time. So, if we hire a service advisor on a salary here, your guys's bips are going to, or your percentage is going to go from 30 to 15 on all of the clients in our But He's going to take the work off your plate so you can scale more. And they were all for it. So, when I did the math, the, the going from 30 to 15 on all of those assets in the book was far more than the salary for the service advisor. So, um, we're getting ready to probably repeat. It's kind of a system that's been working pretty well for the next year. The associate advisors like it. Um, you know, add our service advisors thriving and doing well and getting the experience he wants to elevate himself over time. So I'm kind of envisioning that this can be a pretty good model for us going forward. You know, eventually it might be more of a pure diamond approach or maybe, you know, my elite advisors will have their own service advisors one-on-one. So I might play around with that in the future, but that's just the structure so far as we've started to build that out.
0: So, yeah, I like that.
1: And you can keep repeating that over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty repeatable. I also like to keep it simple wherever I can. And I definitely can get in the weeds and and harm myself um, (laughs) from time to time. But when you think about just, you know, Hey, you guys, you were getting this percentage. Now you're only getting this. They're happy about it because they don't want to service those people. And they want to be able to scale the service advisors get to come in, um, get a nice salary. And what I do is I give them a, a thousand dollar bonus for every 500,000 in assets they find when they're doing all the reviews and working with all those 250 and under clients. So I did that because I didn't want it to be biased on annuities or AUM. And I didn't want to tie them to a percentage of, of anything else. So now it doesn't really matter what they put a client in as long as it's what's right for them. And it's just a thousand dollars for every 500,000 in assets they find. Um, and that's so if they the put,
0: bonus. so if they put money into an annuity, do they get 15% of the commission, the firm earns on the annuity? Uh, the lead advisor? No, the, the, um, Uh, the The service service advisor. advisor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I know we hate the term, but uh, for whatever, you know, the, no, the service advisors do not get a percentage of that annuity. If they put 500 grand into annuity, they get a thousand bucks. And if they put 500 grand into AUM, they get a thousand bucks.
0: Oh, so they're just getting, okay. So they're getting the 15% on the rolling AUM billing that's happening every month. The service advisor is
1: not, they're getting no percentage of anything. They're getting a salary, uh, which is 60 grand um, is the salary I pay them. And a thousand bucks for every uh, five hundred thousand assets they find. The associate advisor is only getting fifteen percent on the book. If they used to get thirty, now they only get fifteen. So the difference is the fifteen percent savings that I get now as the owner of the firm more than compensates the sixty thousand salary and bonus towards the service advisor.
0: Great. Thanks for clarifying that. Yep, okay, so it. we've got. So we've got the money management operation. We've got your CCO Debbie, who also does HR. We've got a financial uh, piece of the operation. We have the advisors. Then um, Mark,
1: I didn't get to marketing. So yeah. we have um, Vanessa, who's our kind of head marketing coordinator. Um, that was a really good find. She was uh, the marketing director for a small FFO creative. You might have heard of creative marketing up there in North County, San Diego. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Is it creative okay? But marketing they're or
0: they're. No, creative marketing is part of creative one, which is in Kansas city. There's Uh, asset, there's asset marketing. Asset marketing is up sort of going up um, a little bit
1: North East of San Diego. Okay. So it's asset marketing. I'm thinking of, yeah, that's right. Not asset mark, asset marketing. Um, But anyway, she was the uh, director for them. And so she literally was analyzing like the 50 different advisory firms and all of their data and their numbers and seminars and stuff. And, she became a mom and took some time off for five or six years when the kids were young and was looking to get back on the market. And we found her. So, I mean, that was a, a nice find. I'd love to say that was all skill, but some luck there. Um, and What's she's her, awesome, name? So, uh, What's her name. Vanessa. Okay. So, um, we have her as kind of our marketing coordinator. Um, she does everything with work with the radio stations and, and kind of act as a liaison between what Dave and I are looking to do and, and following through with, uh, with them, um, all of our digital stuff that we do with the seminars and the you name it. I mean, she's just kind of a coordinator for all things marketing. Um, And then we have Julie. Julie is just our event coordinator. So Julie's only job is to do all of the events we do all year round. So she does the mailers. She does the following up with all the guests and calling all the guests ahead of time. She does the um, actual seminars and working at the restaurants and setting up the events and breaking them down and the follow up with the people to get the appointments and all of that. if we do a client appreciation event or lunch and learns or whatever else we do, she just does all our events for us all year round.
0: And then what about uh, processing the business?
1: Oh yeah. Um, so Ruby um, that second hire, I said that we made pretty quickly out of the gate was Ruby. So she's been kind of our, she's not only the, the head of that department, but kind of also my right-hand gal, I would say um, for everything else. So she's kind of elevated to running that, that business and service department um, and Erica is underneath her. And then Debbie, even though she's mostly in compliance and HR, had a background at Schwab of doing a lot of that. So she can be pulled into that department and help um, if they get real busy and slammed on anything. But for the most part, Ruby and Erica run that department. Cool. So
0: what if you were to give the Brad White of five years ago or six years ago advice, looking back at this young man that existed six and a half years ago, what would the advice be?
1: Oh, um, I think... I would have tried to um, measure twice and cut once on a couple things um, ahead of time. Um, you know, it's it's hard for me to fully regret anything because I, if I'm, I'm very, very happy and very pleased with where I'm at right now. And if you told me six and a half years ago that this is where I'd be, I would have taken it all day long and I'm really happy. So I'm fortunate to say I don't really have a lot of regrets, but there was just a lot of learning curves on the business itself. You know, I mean, going from being an IAR underneath global and trying to manage things there and then eventually figuring out who to hire and how to hire for stuff. And, and then having to repaper our entire client base like three times going from IARs to state RAAs to RAAs and problems with our IAs, And so we've taken a lot of things internally, which is really awesome now that we're pretty an independent firm here and we can scale and, and we've done things in house. I would say that I was pretty ambitious on some of those things where I wish I had known a little bit more ahead of time so I didn't have to redo things kind of in a clunky way along the way. But uh, like I said, I'm uh, I'm happy with where we ended up. And if I had been so worried about measuring twice along the way, then who knows if I would have actually taken on the stuff that we've done and, and grown. So um, overall, you know, pretty, pretty happy with, with a lot of that.
0: Good. And then what about five years from now? What do you think the firm's going to look like five years ago and from now? And if you've done that, if you've got that crystal clear, what's uh, you and David's process for for doing that? setting up that that, that that's the part
1: that's just trickier where you know i'm not the sole owner of a firm um you know for for everybody that's listening that's the sole owner i mean you can constantly just kind of say this is what i want to do and run with it and you know when you're when you're partners you have to be on the same page with that and so far you know so good for dave and i we've been on the same page you know we we have a bit of a different time frame in our lives with me being in my 30s and and dave and you know uh, his late 60s so um, you know, part of that is, is I think a little bit more dependent on, on him and what he wants to do. Um, you know, again, for me, obviously my time frame is longer. So it'd be easy for me to say, well, here's what I want to do over the next five years. But um, this is kind of the first year where I think Dave is starting to think about this a little bit more so far. It hasn't really been on the radar. So we're just kind of starting to have our own internal conversations about maybe what he wants to do and what I want to do. So Unfortunately today I can't give you all the answers other than what I can say is I, I think about going a couple ways with this. Um, I've built out kind of what I call my own franchise model. Um, so like Temecula is a city that's that's kind of between us and like Palm Desert and it's, a, it's grown a lot in the last 20 years and it's pretty underserved. So it would be really easy to um, take our radio show and our radio ads and just go buy some airtime over there. Um, to train, you know, an advisor to do social security seminars out there, um, to hire who I need to hire and tap right into our Salesforce system and our portfolio management system and whatever, and, and just be able to scale the business, kind of do a round two and do the same thing with, the, with our firm here and grow it over a five-year period there and, and kind of double up the business. So part of me thinks about things like that, or even just other offices around San Diego from a scaling standpoint. Part of me thinks, what if you hooked it and got to a billion dollars of AUM and you just kind of stopped worrying about, you know, being on a perpetual marketing wheel and you just had an, a really great revenue firm where you concentrated on your existing clients. So, those are kind of a dichotomy to each other, but um, it depends on the week, Joel. There are certain weeks where I go, screw it, I'm done with all this, I can live off the AUM forever. <laughs> and then there are certain weeks where it's like, hey, this is really fun, this is awesome, why don't I grow this to, uh, you know, be the next Rick Edelman, <laughs> so... Does
0: does it take you a whole week to go back and forth on those things, or is it kind of an hourly? No, no, that's a good
1: point. I'd be lying if I didn't say between breakfast and lunch. That can totally change the five-year plan. That's a good point.
0: Just wanted to make sure I'm not alone here. Um, No, no, no. So how far far is Temecula from where you guys are?
1: We're right off the 15 Freeway in Scripps Ranch. So the question in Southern California always depends on what time of day you're asking. But if it's not busy traffic time of day, it's about a 45-minute, at most, hour straight shot. Um, during traffic, that's more like an hour and a half or hour
0: 45, but it's a separate area. It's a separate area when it comes to radio. So they have their own little radio stations that hit out there and so on.
1: One of our major stations here, Kogo, bleeds into certain parts of it. As they've described, it's, you know, they're trying to sell us right and wide. Don't worry. Most of the city still gets good service, but from our understanding, yeah, it's mostly some other smaller stations out there.
0: Okay, cool. Anything else you want to, uh, this has been great. Um, anything you want to talk about or or say is there anything else we should know there's a lot of people out there listening that would envy uh, that would that, that envy you brad and would love to have a firm the quality the size and run as well as epstein and white so what
1: other advice can you give us here um well, I, just as far as like things to say or not you know one of the things that i think a lot of us try to figure out is like where we get our success from you know what i mean um So I was going to kind of ask you that, Joel, like, I guess I'll, I'll lead into with mine. You know, when I think of like my unique skill set and what I do well, it's really being in front of a client in a meeting and building a financial plan. Um, I just consider myself a really good comprehensive planner and being able to position things in a way that's easily understood from people and close some business. And so my ability to kind of um, have a system of hiring talent and hiring advisors, I think was really the main key for us. So I just, I was just going to ask you maybe a question on, and if you were to think like, okay, like what is it that allows us at Johnson Brady? Like, what is that kind of core ingredient? Like, I, I don't know. Do you have like an answer to that for yourself? I've been trying to think about this on like, if I, if I take apart the the overall recipe here, like, and if I'm trying to scale up Epstein and white, what are the ingredients I'm trying to like really concentrate on? I don't know if you've thought about that or if you have an answer for you. I was curious about that.
0: Well, well yeah. And it, it's sort of evolving, right? So it's a little easier if we talk about where we're at two years ago versus where we're at now because I feel like we're in this transition or maybe it's me that's in the transition. But two years ago, I, you know, take 2017 and go back five years. I mean, it was all about how can we build this assembly line, right, this building that's just giant assembly line and feed as much raw materials on the one side of it. So it goes through the conveyor belt, you know, and all the systems yeah. and out the other end comes this polished product. You know, I talk all the time in Rainmaker about a about an automobile assembly line where you put metal Mm -hmm. and rubber and all this crap in one side and then out the other side pops a new car. And so how can we shove more stuff in that one side where the raw material goes in, have processes in place and systems in place and people in place to do all the stuff that needs to happen as that raw material passes down through the building and out comes a brand new car. And, and, you know, thinking that way in the business, I think – is very helpful, whether you want to have a hyper fast growing business, or whether you just want to grow enough to stay level, because like, you're not going to keep all your assets, hopefully, that's not news to everybody. Um, Or whether you want to, you know, whatever you want to do, I think, for us, it's been looking at the business that way, how do we create more appointments, the biggest problem any advisor still has in this business is having enough appointments. If you are a face to face financial advisor, that's meeting with clients, almost everybody would do better with either better appointments or more appointments, or maybe a combination of those two. So it's keeping that focus on that one main issue. Now, as we grow, then it's how do we do things better and more efficiently. But in the beginning, it's just, let's just do more. Let's just do more appointments and almost let the skill set of the firm catch up to the volume of the appointments. So we've always been a little bit ahead as far as our ability to generate appointments, as we have been in maybe our skill level to, to work with those people 100% perfectly, let's say. We've always been kind of about 85 or 90%, still doing an awesome job for the clients, and a better job than they'll get almost anywhere else. But in yeah. my mind, we've always tried to catch up with our processes and our systems to our ability to generate the appointments. So I think, I think that's really, really key. Now, as we've gotten bigger, now it's about the talent we're hiring. And if I have a frustration today, it's the question of do we have the right people to go forward? And I'm not saying we don't have the right people, but it's sort of the question that I'm asking myself. You know, if I want to step out and drive cars or ski and just show up, you know, like my buddy Matt Dickin. I mean, what an awesome, you know, if you listen to Dustin's podcast, if you didn't listen yeah, to did. it go back. But I mean, you know, Matt comes into the office and just crushes it for Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, or at least this is what Dustin says. You know, usually the truth is you never know. But (laughs) anyway, it's probably not the case. Uh, I'm sure this is true. Um, So Matt comes in and just crushes it at the company for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or maybe Monday and Tuesday, and then gets on an airplane and goes racing. And he has to have a certain level of talent in that company to allow him to do that. So that's sort of where we're at. And maybe we're a little bit ahead of those guys as far as production numbers and so on. But that's what the game becomes is do I have the depth in my company to be able to run this company, make strategic decisions, hold people accountable, do all those things that are kind of uncomfortable um, dealing with people and questioning, am I doing the right thing? And maybe not knowing what's going to work, but you have to kind of fake it to your people and say – This is going to work, and you just hope it does. All those little skills of a CEO, do I have the right people in my company to do that? And then are we hiring better people? So if we lose a business processor, are we hiring a better one? If we lose a marketing coordinator, are we hiring a better one? Um, If we lose an advisor, are we hiring a better one? All of those things that I've been doing and driving all these years, do I have the people in, in place to continue that? And that's, I think, really where we're at as a firm right now. Um, even though our marketing isn't as good as maybe it used to be as far as efficiency and so on. We're working on getting that back, but it's still about people. You know, do I have to solve that problem, that marketing problem, or do I have the people in place that can solve it? And that's what I'm really questioning right now. And and so I think there's two answers to your questions, maybe very long-winded answers, but one is just focusing on more raw material into the end of the assembly line so that out the other side comes a client. And have we done a great job for that person? And have we done a better job than they would get anywhere else? And have we worked with somebody that wouldn't get any attention somewhere else? So that's that's that part of the deal. But then it's do we have the talent to to and I hate the word scale because it makes it sound like we're turning, you know, clients into widgets or something, but do I have the ability to build and repeat that process? And do I have the talent in place? So that's kind of where we're at. Um, but I think fundamentally, I mean, if we're struggling this year, if we're flat this year, guess what it goes back to? Not enough first appointments. It's always about not enough first appointments. And people say, oh, my gosh, I don't want to have more first appointments. I'm too busy. Then get another advisor. You don't have to have more first appointments. So that's that's pretty much it. I mean, that's what's worked. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see as we go through this transition if we can build out the depth of, um, you know, continuing in, on this awesome journey. Cause I too, Brad could just sit back and have a pretty amazing lifestyle and probably never show up, but, um, I don't know if I'd be able to do that or not. But um, that the other that, thing,
1: yeah, that doesn't drive you, you know, you personally, I mean, from just, you know, having gotten to know you and even our conversation today, um, it's kind of interesting. You said that that is like exactly where my mind has been over this last year or year or two. Um, I guess I could have answered your question before of what advice would I give myself five years ago or six years ago. I think that the better answer is what advice would I give myself is that every problem can be solved by the who. Um, I, I was at some conference and somebody said that and it stuck with me that everybody's always trying to figure out all these problems by figuring out the what and the how and the why. Like, all right, how do we figure out this problem? What do we need to do to make this problem better? If you get the right who, they solve the what and the how and the why. And so that yeah, that's a
0: stuff. Dan. That's a Dan Sullivan thing. So I don't know if I said that uh, at oh, okay, the last yeah. group or or maybe somebody else said it. But that's a big strategic coach thing that Dan's talking about now all the time. Is stop trying to figure out the how. Figure out the who, and they'll figure out
1: the how. Yeah. Okay. And I haven't gotten a strategic coach, so I don't. I you know I don't know who I heard that from, but uh, I will gladly steal and take credit where I can. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> you just expose me. So. But no, I think it reigns true because for me personally, like I think one of my greatest strengths is my weak. One of my greatest weaknesses that I live in this healthy state of paranoia at all times. Like I I'm always just wondering, like, what is going to make what is going to hurt this business? Like what could happen to take all this down? Like it feels so insulated. Right. It feels like the marketing machine is up. It feels like our departments are here. Our clients are happy. But it's like what could happen? And for me, the only thing that could actually like really affect and tear down a business like ours that's up and running would be really, really unhappy clients. And to me, that would only be because the product isn't good. And in our world, the investments are all somewhat of a commodity. So to me, the product is the service. So as long as the service is good, our product is good, the clients are happy. So that's why I'm so neurotic there. I'm thinking that can't take us down. And then I'm thinking about you know stupid compliance or stupid other things that could take us down. So I've been kind of neurotic there. But if you get the right who in place, I think for me, I'm the kind of person that if, if I get that confidence that I can scale, that I can grow this thing with the right who, and I won't have to worry about the product being bad and not delivering on promises to, to people and, and just feeling morally good about what we're doing once people become clients, I, I feel like once I get that confidence, I can blow things up more. That's kind of what I need as the CEO to feel good about doing more and pumping more into that conveyor belt is just knowing that what comes out of that conveyor belt is, is the Quality, the level of quality that I want. And if I get the right who, then that level of quality is good. And and then everything else is good to go. So, Well, and that's
0: really, that's so important because, you know, we may be the only, I don't mean to get religious here, but you know, there's a saying that you may be the only Bible that somebody ever sees um, your life. And, um, and it's the same thing with, you know, we may be the only person, uh, the only financial advisor that somebody is ever affected by. Yeah. And, you know, are you going to leave them? First of all, are you going to leave them off better than before they met you? But are you going to do the absolute best job for them? Um, and hopefully you're not going to damage them. And there's a lot of things in this world, in the world of financial advice that are not certain. And so um, are we doing the best job possible? And I know in the, fa- in the past, I would say, have we done 100%? No. Um, and maybe a hundred percent is impossible. So maybe 95% is possible, but there's been a lot of times where we've been trying to grow so fast that, um, you know, maybe we're not at that 95% that's attainable. Maybe we're at 85, you know, maybe we're at 90. Um, and so can we deliver what somebody deserves? And my gosh, you know, so few people have the lifestyle that we're able to have in this business that, um, you know, I, I hope that, you know when i'm long gone people will look back and say hey he did the right thing for the client one at a time one client at a time
1: yeah i mean that's kind of what drives me you know it's not that i don't get driven by production and get driven by the paychecks of the firm doing well of course i do but you know i always just kind of think of clients at a dinner party or whatever somewhere and somebody else is complaining about their money going down or something happening and i just envision my clients being like oh thank god i'm at epstein and white like thank god i never had and like if i can like envision us delivering and that that conversation is going on and they're grateful for that. Like everything else around here, I feel like I can take care of, you know, so
0: awesome. Well, Brad, this has been great. Thank you for, uh, thank you for joining me here. And I think this will help a lot of people. Actually, I know it will. And uh, stay tuned, everybody out there in podcast land. We've got another good one coming up shortly. Um, Also, we've been getting a ton of calls uh, because I made the announcement at the last Rainmaker group that, you know, this is going to be a first come first serve. I'm going to open it up to people that are in the existing groups for about two weeks before I let anybody else join that's interested. So make sure you sign up um, in the first, you know, very quickly when you get your link. That link has not gone out. We have been bombarded in my office with people that think they've missed the link and they're going to miss out or get blocked out of next year's group. Have a little technical difficulties between us and, and uh, Advisors Excel of getting that link put together and getting it out. So don't worry, uh, just keep your eyes out. But nobody has missed out as of what's today, Brad? October 17th. So October 17th. as of October 17th, nobody has missed out, um, but keep an eye out on your email box. Brad, thanks a
1: lot. My pleasure, Joel. Thank you as always. And, um, I thank everybody else that's in the Rainmaker group. Everybody's helped me a ton. If there's anything anybody feels like I could ever do, don't hesitate. So I I appreciate all this.
0: Awesome. So that's it. So we'll sign off for another Rainmaker Evolution podcast and we'll see you guys next time.